Welcome to Politics in the North, where a couple of recovering policy bonks get together to discuss politics. Hello and welcome to Politics in the North. So today we are joined with another wonderful cast of people. I by no means can introduce all of you to the best extent that I can, so I'll let you all do a self-introduction of it. So I guess we'll start off with Eddie. Hey everyone, just another usual participant in this podcast uh, and reeling uh, have another uh, chat on the economy, policy, and life in COVID. And we're also joined today by Robin. Hi, yes, this is Robin, my first time on the podcast. Very excited to join, so thank you for having me. And Bushra. Hi everyone, this is Bushra. I'm excited to be joining again and talking about some important issues with all of you. So right off the bat, we're all... I believe we are all living in Ontario at the moment. And naturally, the province has been opening up incrementally. So given that we're now transitioning to kind of phase two in terms of the reopening, I'm interested to see if any of you have taken advantage of these changes or are planning to do something in the not too distant future. Well, maybe we give Robin a chance, seeing as she's... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, I have definitely taken advantage of the easing of restrictions for being allowed to see larger groups of people. My number one priority was coming out to see my family, which I'm very grateful I've been able to do, especially just in time for Father's Day and getting to meet my new little niece. So that's been my big excitement over the the easing of restrictions here in Ontario. At least on my end, I think I've been really excited to have an increased number of friendship circles increased to 10, so more gatherings and see people I haven't seen in months, but then also seeing a little bit much more on the business end, a few more places open up, some uh, restaurants, patios, hopefully barbers at some point. But I think it's really great to at least see people moving, see Main Street going on again as well. It provides a sense of hope and optimism as well. Although we still have to be cautious, the virus is still present, but it still sends a little bit more positivity than we did have in March. Yeah, I guess my situation is a little bit different from the rest of the people who've joined our podcast today. And I think that's because my family's already basically reached its 10 person limit with their own groups at this point in time. So I haven't really had a chance to expand into, you know, meeting some of my friends. So I'm pretty much in the same situation that I've been during the entire pandemic. So still at home, sticking to my inner circle family members, because they've already taken up the additional five membership with the people that they've met up with. So it's been (laughs) an interesting experience in that regard. But I'm also, I think, fairly lucky because I can still connect with people online. So I'm really mindful of the type of relationships I'm able to foster versus other members of my family. So I think that's where we have to, as a collective, come to certain compromises and think about what's best for everyone in a situation. And I get to be on podcasts with amazing people like you. So I think I'm still able to have that type of social connection, but I do look forward to seeing people in person eventually. (laughs) 
For sure. The 10 people limit feels a lot like picking and choosing your friends to add on to your Spotify family playlist, (laughs) figuring out who you can share. And for sure, there's a lot of kind of toggling and juggling and figuring out how how you can at least adhere to it while being safe. It's been an interesting time to say the least. But I think on that note, so the economy is starting to reopen to a certain degree. You're starting to see storefronts kind of getting engaged. Main Street is starting to open up bit by bit. But the economy as a whole is nowhere near where it was two to three months ago. There's a lot of issues that kind of come to mind, but I think top of mind clearly has been the most recent employment report that came out in May. It was framed as a surprise by the media in terms of the number of job gains, but I'd be curious to kind of get everyone's take in terms of what was your impression in seeing those job numbers? What are the implications associated with, yes, we had some job growth, but at the end of the day, unemployment is still at what, 13.1, 13.7%. Well, I think the problem for me in particular, as I'm looking at these numbers and the way that the entire situation is being framed is that we're talking about reopening in the economy and we're talking about job losses or gains. And I think the challenge is that people are still working in various facets and forms and sectors. I think the amount of unpaid labor has definitely increased. And so I think we need to make that distinction, right? So there are individuals who are still doing work, but their work isn't being paid. And I think that certain organizations have been able to justify not being able to pay their employees because of the situation that we're in with COVID-19. But I think this this has actually been a longstanding issue. So within sectors that are providing essential services to the vast majority of our population, they've still been working. Unfortunately, the amount of money that they've been paid for their work has traditionally and continues to be under what is considered a living wage. And so I think those are some of the things that we need to unpack and challenge as we talk about so-called reopening of the economy. I think what we need to really look at in this moment of time is how do we transition to a just economy rather than thinking about reopening something that was never really closed for some people in the first place. It was more so how they were being treated in this process and how their work was being valued. And I think that also includes applying a gendered lens to this and the lens of racism, right? So there have been certain groups of people who have been marginalized both historically and contemporarily and not enough is being talked about or discussed and planned for how we transition to a place where our economy is truly just. Many of these issues intersect, right? So we've been seeing many people protest in response to anti-Black racism and anti-Indigenous racism. And I think we need to really take a more systems lens approach when we're trying to address some of these issues. I think those are really great points and I'd like to just kind of pull on two of those. The first is just looking again at the reopening the economy in a just manner and making sure it's specific to individual people. So of course, you've talked about this in past episodes of the podcast as well and kind of become a bit of a the it word of the month, this idea of, of this recession being the first she session. So there's a stat that uh, total employment increased by just 1.1% for women in Canada in May compared with 2.4% for men. So there's this idea as well of ensuring how are we going to make sure that women can equally come back into the economy. And of course, there are various ways to look at that, supporting childcare. You know, there's a whole other conversation we can have about that as well. But the other thing that I thought was a really key aspect of this reopening of the economy is the amount of small businesses that are going to have to have shut down and what that means for a small business economy in Canada and how the government can work towards supporting and empowering entrepreneurs. And that also ties directly into racial segregation in terms of um, workplace participation. We 
see entrepreneurs tend to be from particular classes of people. That's something that the government should be looking at in terms of when the economy starts to really reopen. How can we encourage people from all backgrounds and all walks of life to start their own small businesses? How can we support entrepreneurs? Because that's going to be an area of the economy that's really going to struggle for the next little while. What I would add on to that, I think, was outside Canada, I think the U.S. Federal Reserve had made comment that they would be maintaining interest rates to be low. And for them, they felt that there is going to be a period of uncertainty, that they cannot see the end of the light for some time, right? And I think it's very cognizant to know that for a lot of businesses, even small businesses, they may not have a place to come back to as well. They may not have the capital and they may not be able to, even in the reopening, be able to generate as much revenue as they did before. And I think even if we're looking at a more just economy as well, we also have to begin, and I think we've mentioned this before, I think re-looking at topics like increasing minimum wage and also having some kind of support system that allows for people to have some kind of income that comes to them from the government as well. I think we had the CERB, which is a temporary measure, but even something that is very long term. I know that Ontario had piloted a project like this, which was shut down a few years ago. However, basic income is going to be something essential as we move out of a post-COVID world for a period in time as well. And also governments may also have to take a cue from some of the European countries where there's going to be a little bit more emphasis on supporting people with developing certain types of skills, different types of other trades as well, in different facets as well, especially those that are coming in from marginalized groups. How best can you support them with providing them with the necessary skill sets as they move forward? And I think also one topic that's also not addressed, and I think maybe Bush had hinted on it as well, is just the migrant workers that do fly into Canada that are not provided with, say, the basics. How best are we supporting them as well as we go into a post-COVID world because they're working day in and day out and they may not have as many of the privileges or luxuries as well or the, say, the healthcare allowances. So what kind of system can we construct to ensure that every person, even at the margins, is well protected? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of add to what Eddie was saying. And I think he raised a really important issue. So this idea of migrant workers, but also newcomers or immigrants who are within our like labor force. And so when I've been looking at the situation, looking at who's in frontline positions in COVID-19, especially in the healthcare sector, I also think about refugees and newcomers or, or immigrants who have long had barriers to being able to practice medicine, for example, or enter into the healthcare care field despite having foreign training and how during COVID-19 we actually saw that many governments not just in Canada but around the world were removing some of these restrictions at least temporarily in order to kind of meet the expected surge and demand in the healthcare sector and I think that's problematic for a variety of reasons I think a it shows us and demonstrates that these restrictions may not have been necessary in the first place that we could have actually facilitated these individuals to be able to work in their areas of expertise and areas that they had been trained and had developed experience. But 
outside of the domestic context. And I think the second reason it's problematic is because many of the ways that these, the removal of some of the barriers to be able to work in these sectors have been framed is in ways that would actually not allow for the full realization of their rights or the protections. And so that there could be exploitation of their labor because they would be working under another individual or they would have temporary like status within an organization or within the healthcare sector. And then the third reason it's problematic is because it really shows us how individuals who are newcomers or who are racialized are being valued within these sectors. So when there was, you know, the idea that we might have healthcare shortages across the world, that that was the moment where people realized because it was in their own benefit overall in society and people in positions of like privilege and authority that they might be at risk if we don't have like a sufficient healthcare system, which includes having people from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including refugees and newcomers, immigrants and racialized individuals, that it would actually harm everybody overall. And I think just really the way that people are being instrumentalized in this process is really problematic. But I also have hope that as we start to unpack these issues and make them more explicit, that we can actually have more effective policy reforms in the near future. Yeah, I was kind of hoping to touch on how this relates to the 2008 policy response to the 2008-2009 the financial crisis. So I think it's really re- relevant to what Brochure is saying, because in previous recessions, governments have focused very much on bailing out the financial sector and focusing on firm support. And I think what we're seeing that's different right now in terms of this recession and, and the response to COVID-19 is that there needs to be more support on the individual workers and more priority given to supporting individual in their jobs, in their work, um, whether you're in frontline or really just, you know, in temporary work, there needs to be more security for those individuals. And that is part of how this recession is going to be solved. It's not just necessarily bailing out firms. So, you know, there are certain policy ideas that can be imposed on this, things like wage insurance, which is something that I've actually just recently come across. This idea that if you're going from a higher paid area of work, it can be perhaps for migrant workers or for people coming over and starting new jobs and need to reduce the salary that they're intaking. And it also can be for entrepreneurship as well, if this is something that can be used to to encourage people to enter entrepreneurship and having some kind of wage insurance so that when you lose your wage or you need to take another job that's at a lower wage than when you started, there is some sort of basic support for you. And if it's not basic income, then it's this idea of bridging the gap maybe for a year while you work up to a higher wage or while you adjust your spending habits to be in a new wage bracket. So I think this idea of governments needing to focus on people over firms, on the health as well of people, this is not a financial crisis, this is a healthcare crisis. And so government responses need to be adequately aligned with understanding that this recession isn't going to go away, these economic woes aren't going to go away, this treatment of migrant workers, none of it's going to go away unless we actually deal with the root cause of the issue, which in this case is the healthcare crisis. So in our response, we need to be focused on the individual and on on the health sector as well, I believe. Yeah, that's an amazing point. For me, I've consistently been seeing this recurring meme online focused on the Fed Reserve goes burr in the sense that a lot of the market interventions previously have been very much focused on bolstering liquidity and providing financing to the financial markets. But the interesting thing, at least in this current context, is with direct payments like the CERB, clearly the intention was we just don't want people to go to work. We need to control this health crisis first and foremost, and we're willing to pay and give individuals money directly to actually execute on it. On the flip side, though, I think 
I have a lot of questions in terms of the supports that small businesses have been receiving. For instance, you have the rent subsidies, but from at least anecdotally, they're very difficult to actually get and implement. And you need to get sign off from your landlord to be able to receive funding associated with it. So you have a lot of these small businesses that are kind of caught in a bind in the sense that basically they've been forced to shut down for good reason. And even in a reopening context, how many of these businesses can honestly continue to run at 25% capacity, at 50% capacity, given how low margin many small businesses are on the main street? I'd be interested to kind of get everyone's impressions in terms of how big of a change will we see on the main street coming out of this crisis moving forward, barring any other additional interventions? On that point, I think for Main Street, a lot of small businesses on Main Street, not many of them are going to survive. This has been a very self-inflicted blow that I don't think a lot of people were aware of. And even just operating a business, I think there are lots of expenses, loans that you have to pay back. And if we're looking even at the rent as well, right, even the landlords have to ensure that they're paying their banks. So I think it's going to have a very crucial blow to a lot of small businesses. I think what you may see is that some of these small businesses being eaten up by the much larger ones down the line. And that may mean that we're losing some of the mom and pop shops that may not have enough liquidity or enough supports provided to them. I think for a period in time, we're going to have a suffering within the small business area until we get back to some form of stability. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of lenses through which you can look at this. There's, you know, Main Street in Toronto, but then there's Main Street in smaller, more rural areas that may have been less affected as well. So really, it just kind of depends on geography. So was your area somewhere that was super hard hit by the virus and was in lockdown? You know, Toronto and the GTA is going to be on lockdown for probably a few extra weeks instead of the rest of the province, which is opening it up at a quicker rate. And also in terms of the small businesses, are they operating in in what industries? Are they in the restaurant industry, in which case that might be really, really hard to come back from? Or are they a smaller shop where they might not have as high overhead, as much staffing requirements, and it's easier for them to come back? And And again, also, you know, are they in the tourism industry or entertainment industry, for example, because those, of course, are going to be really hard hit. You have some of these entertainment district venues that might not see business for, you know, until vaccine comes out. Uh, So the impacts of COVID-19 are going to just be so unique to the situation of each industry, of each geography level. And again, it goes back to something you were talking about, I think, in a previous podcast, which is this idea of resiliency and how are these shops going to be able to withstand these shocks. And so I think we're just going to see varied responses to how main streets around the world, not just in Canada, are able to come back from this crisis. Yeah, and kind of building off of your point on resiliency, Robin, I think it's important to unpack what resiliency means. And we've identified this as being a health crisis. Arguably, it's a systemic crisis in that I think the pandemic has revealed many things that are flawed within our existing systems, whether it's political, economic. And so as we're starting to think about how we develop more of that resiliency, I think we need to take that systems level approach. And so one of the things that I've been really thinking about is 
well, what is one of the things that people lose when they lose their job? And I think in the Canadian context, something that isn't discussed enough is the question about whether our healthcare system is truly universal. So many people's access to dental care, mental health care, pharma care is attached to their employment status. And that in and of itself is a problem. But beyond that, like not every employer will even provide these types of benefits. It's really up to the employer at the end of the day, because there aren't enough protections in place. But when we start to compare the rates of people who are uninsured when it comes to dental care, pharma care, and mental health care, our numbers are actually quite comparable in Canada to the US. And so while there may be this, you know, impression that people have of Canada having truly universal health care, compared to many other countries, that's not actually the case, unless you really look at the US, for example. But I don't think that the US should be a benchmark when it comes to healthcare access. And in fact, I think it's been rightly criticized by many people. And we're seeing the the impacts of having that lack of accessible healthcare as we're looking at their approach and their response to the pandemic. And so those are some of the things that I think we need to start to really focus on is what are the protections in place? What are the supports in place for individuals? And looking beyond maybe some temporary measures to provide things like the CERB. So providing this emergency response benefit, while it will definitely benefit some people in the short term, I think what we need to really talk about is how are we so vulnerable to these types of pandemics and these systemic shocks? Because this won't be the only systemic shock that we're going to face as a society. We know that climate change is going to exacerbate many of these things, that pandemics such as these are likely to occur in the future again. And so how do we build up that resiliency in the system in a way that doesn't just focus on temporary fixes? So that's, I think, what we need to be looking at and not just planning for reactionary responses all the time. I know that we had that pilot project for basic income, for example, but that was canceled. And we need to start asking those questions of like, why are we not investing money into these types of projects that would help develop resiliency in our systems and only really looking towards those types of interventions when we're faced with or in the midst of a shock or a pandemic or a recession? Yeah, Bersha, you bring up a good point as in why don't we like really plan out these resiliency questions, right? Why don't we put them front and center whenever we're formulating budgets or coming up with action plans? Why don't we hold politicians accountable? And I think it's something that I usually like to ponder upon because usually after a health scare or after like some kind of economic recession, we seem to go back to our old ways where we tend to forget a lot of the bad that has happened as well, right? In the moment of the crisis, that's when we begin asking ourselves, why didn't we do this? We should have done that. And then when everything gets back to normal, then we tend to not really think about it. And I think this is where you're going to have like jurisdictions like the European Union that are going to be a little bit far ahead of, say, the North, their North American counterparts because they're beginning to include, say, sustainability. They're beginning to include these topics of resiliency, uh, not only at the institutional level, but also at the individual level as well, how can you ensure that the average European is able to be protected, has the enough supports wherever they are in Europe, has enough the skills, and also access to, like, say, mental health, dental care as well. These are questions that they're beginning to work on as well, if they haven't already. And it is something that will require a national 
not only a dialogue, but then action in terms of our own uh, politicians here in Ottawa and also in the province to really take a stand and say that they're going to come up with a national action plan that's going to try and focus on resiliency, both at the institutional, individual and community level to ensure that any time we have a pandemic like this or if the next kind of situation, it could be a climate change related event that we are well prepared, we're well suited as well. These are some of the things that we have to continue holding our elected officials accountable on as well. We have to make it election issue. And I think we also have to make it a regular kind of conversation, not only at the dinner table, but in classrooms and everywhere else. I think this is something that has to become, in, it has to come up in our usual dialogue for it to be state of play, even after post-pandemic. Yeah, I think you raised some really great points, Eddie, about the amount of work that needs to go into policy planning. And so as we were talking again about resiliency, a question that I've been thinking about as well is, was the capitalist system, as we currently understand it, ever meant to be resilient? The emphasis for a really long time has been on efficiency, and we're seeing the negative implications of that hyper-focus on efficiency, instead of really looking at how we're both really emphasizing or prioritizing resiliency, but also the regenerative nature of our economies, the ability for us to restore the environment, for example, and to really advance equity and justice through the different like levers that we have in place, which includes economic levers. I think that's something that we need to unpack as well as we're trying to look towards this just transition. Particularly when you're looking at it from a business perspective, many of these companies that are going under, essentially the models that they've been focused in on again, isn't focused on withstanding huge shocks. If you look at, say, a company like the airline industry, right off the top of my head, I think only 20 airlines in the entire world are actually profitable. The others go through boom and buff cycles and typically require government interventions on a consistent basis. But again, it goes back to the same point that many of the business models that are currently in place, many of the pricing models, aren't compatible with the resiliency that we're likely going to need in the future. I agree on that point, Chris. I think it's definitely, I think if you're looking at different industries like the airline industry, I think that's one good example as well. It's always more on, we never ask ourselves whenever we're traveling as well, does this airline have like enough capital to survive any kind of shock? That's not the first thing that comes into our head. I think we're more interested in the destination. The benefits of such a, of a pandemic like this is that it really forces us to think outside the box as well, right? When you're signing a new home, they do resiliency checks, right? Do you have enough capital on hand as well in order to, in case you lose your job, they have those checks at the individual level. And I think we should be having those checks at for many other firms as well. But then also, I think one other aspect as well is that in a community front, as we've seen in the US and over the past few weeks as well, are the communities well taken care of, right? Do they have the resiliency? Because even if inequities and inequality are not managed as well, then you do not have a resilient nation as well. You, you do not, you're one part of the nation is struggling and is dying, whereas the other is barely able to make it as well. Like if you have strong, healthy and equitable uh, communities, you're able to actually go far. So I think even in that kind of case, I think we have to really look at it from a variety of vantage points. 
Yeah, I think uh, that the point of a variety of vantage points and the idea of an equitable society is really interesting, especially in Canada. And this can be a whole topic in and of itself. But if we weren't talking about this particular crisis of COVID-19, we might be looking at other crises that are happening simultaneously, like the energy shocks in the oil sector and how that's impacting places in Canada like Alberta and how the additional crisis of the oil shocks is going to have hugely unequal consequences for Albertans versus for those who live in, you know, Quebec or Ontario or BC. So these are multifaceted issues that the federal government must be looking at right now and provincial governments as well to be able to build resiliency in all sectors and also taking into account the various unique situations that provinces are currently facing. You bring up a really important point, Robin. I think looking at the way that different groups of people are experiencing some of these economic shocks is really important. And even within the context of Alberta, who is being impacted the most. So we're seeing that, again, frontline workers, people within like the healthcare sector or individuals who are working within the energy sector who are not C-suite level executives are being disproportionately impacted. And so there's also the conversation that we should be having about how different types of leadership are responding to these types of economic issues or pandemics and other types of crises. Because once we start to really focus on what leadership is doing and how they're framing the problems, I think we can start to really map out the implications of those types of decisions. And I wanted to kind of pick up on something that Eddie also brought up about the impacts on different types of communities and really the communities who have been disadvantaged and how they're able to build up resiliency in the face of inequality and inequity. And when it comes back to this question of leadership, I think about the what we had seen within Parliament over the last week, where Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, was removed from Parliament for even pointing out the systemic racism that exists. And I think that's a problem when we're more apt to punish the individuals who are helping us identify the problems that exist versus how we're really responding to the people who are perpetuating the problem or who are being complacent in really allowing these problems to exist in the first place instead of tackling the root issues. And so even as we're unpacking how to have a more just approach, whether it's through a social, economic, or healthcare lens, or a political lens, how much trust do we have that our political leaders will be able to take decisive action when they're still, I think, operating within a system that is fundamentally unjust? It's rooted in colonization, white supremacy, the enslavement of individuals, especially Black and Indigenous individuals. And so until we really start to hold these institutions and leaders accountable, I'm not sure how much confidence I have in the people who are in positions of authority to be able to move forward in a way that is truly beneficial to all Canadians. I think that's an interesting point because most governing systems naturally are geared towards incrementalism in the sense that you very rarely see large, significant changes pushed through over a short period of time. Given the the current crisis context, I'm thinking they're not thinking systemically in terms of how can we prevent this. It's literally how can I put out the fire right now? And I don't know what can help governments be more effective at taking on the these huge challenges. I'm curious to get your takes in terms of what can be done to improve government's responsiveness towards more long-term problems. Because clearly they've been effective at kind of dealing with issues in the short term, but many of the huge systemic issues that we're dealing with now are very much long tail. So what can be done to make the responses more effective? 
I think the first step is to even acknowledge that these issues exist. We've seen some pushback in even stating that systemic racism is an issue in the Canadian context. And we've seen some leaders now kind of, you know, have a reversal on that position, you know, stating things like, I didn't understand what systemic racism was, but I feel like that's even problematic. And we should also question why people who are leading organizations don't understand how systems work in the first place, which also calls into question whether a person who's in a position of leadership is ready to really manage if they have those types of management and leadership skills when they're in these positions, or whether it's just as a result of maybe privilege or even bureaucracies that they've been promoted to or elevated to those types of positions. I think that type of institutional lens is important. But as I've been stating, like throughout this podcast, this systemic approach is really important. And I think to understand why things haven't happened, we need to be very explicit about the issues that are existing in our societies and the histories behind those issues, because we haven't really had the type of national conversation on racism in Canada that places like the U.S. have been having. And I think it's really important for us to open up that dialogue and to really help even educate our population because so much of our education system glosses over these issues or erases people's identities and histories and their contributions to Canada as we understand it today. And so it's really about that system's approach again. So you would need to tackle it through the education system. You would need to have more effective accountability measures in place so that when leaders make promises that we can truly engage democratically and hold them accountable. We need to look at income inequalities and how those have also been, you know, rooted in historic inequalities that have taken place. And again, like really building wealth off of the labor of individuals who have been enslaved or who have been marginalized historically in many different ways. And so to not have those types of conversations doesn't allow us to really start to identify the problems and therefore develop solutions that are are responsive to those. And one such solution is to develop a more progressive tax system. So we can understand taxation as a way to have effective reparations, for example, when we start to tax the wealthy in a way that is actually conducive to the needs of our society and is more equitable and just within our system, then we can see the individuals who have historically held wealth because, again, of the privileges that they had been afforded by those unjust um, systems, which we are continuing to exist in, then maybe we can start to see some of these inequalities addressed more systematically instead of having people piecemeal policies. Yeah, I think everything that Busher said is totally on point and I completely agree. I'll just add one quick thing in that I also think it, it requires participation from people who are already in power and not just politically, but who have the social networks and the economic wealth in order to make change. It really involves, it requires the involvement of those individuals. And we've seen a huge uptick in the amount of actual action that people are, are taking nowadays in terms of calling their elected officials and being involved in protests, etc. And, ha- and having those conversations. And I think in any social movement and any social change, there needs to be mass participation and a, a willingness to hold elected officials accountable and to be an active democratic participant. And that goes for you know everything from the Black Lives Matter movement that we're currently seeing and have seen for the last uh, decade or so to the responses to COVID-19 and how there's going to be you know inequality and unjust situations that come from the recession that we're currently in, there needs to be people speaking up for for those injustices. 
I think my final point would be that I think to Chris, you had asked like a lot of the policy that, that we do see happening happens at an incremental level. And there tends to be a lot of negotiation that happens between say parties in order to get a particular policy option. I think you're going to have to utilize some of the things where we've seen successful leaders achieve, like say Prime Minister Arden in New Zealand, who has been very great with the communication, as in just like having a frank conversation with the populace about what is wrong and what needs to be done. And what needs to be done is the right thing. Two, you need at least political parties that are willing, they're not going to be too worried about the polling numbers, but are just going to be focused more on governing and getting the stuff done, which is like very hard to do, I know. But you need that kind of action within the political parties that are willing to take some form of action and implement certain necessary policies that help address some of the existing systemic inequities and equalities and also ensure resiliency. I also believe that parties themselves should actively seek out and encourage more members of the community for marginalized and also communities of color to actually participate. I think gone are the days when we'll need like an old, say, white man telling us exactly how we should vote as well. I think our communities have grown and evolved to the point where we're able to at least take a stand and also advocate for issues that really are worthwhile for our communities. And I think it's about time political parties also begin listening and begin recruiting a lot of members from uh, from these communities uh, to actually represent them. And I think that's where we also begin seeing change from the makeup of our political governance in ensuring that the policies that, we, that are elected actually reflect some of our deepest concerns and needs. And on that note, I think we'll be wrapping this one up.